0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jacob Herman, and if you're not familiar with Jacob, he is an engineer who is based out of Gothenburg, and he works on a lot of different styles, but he has really earned a reputation for his skills in drum recording and getting amazing drum sounds. He owns a place called Top Floor Studios, and through that studio, he's worked with a lot of great artists, including Anthrax, In Inflames, Europe, Machine Head, Justin Hawkins, Avatar, and a whole bunch more. And in today's conversation, we really focus a lot on his drum recordings because, yeah, as you'll as you'll hear in this interview, he really gained a reputation very early on for being very thorough with understanding the nuances of recording drums and how to get specific sounds and what it takes because, you know, as you're going to hear in this interview, There's no one way to record drums. There are a lot of different options and a lot of different uh, tools in your tool chest between the mics and the drum skins and the angles and the distances and different positioning techniques and a whole bunch of other stuff. And in this interview... I try to dig into Jacob's process to understand a little bit more about how he dissects a sound and what kind of techniques he's using to achieve specific sounds or what he does in order to make an artist's vision for the drums come to life. And as you'll hear in this interview, there are definitely a lot of different approaches and, you know, Jacob's definitely not the type of person to say here's the one way I do it, you know. There's definitely a lot of scenarios and it really depends. But through our conversation, I think you're going to learn a little bit more about how to dig deeper and to truly understand the sound that you're after and what it takes to actually achieve that sound. So I think if you're the type of person who's recording acoustic drums and you're chasing specific sounds, I think you're going to get a ton out of this interview. And uh, for me as a drummer, you know, I've always focused on trying to achieve great drum sounds and really understanding how to get great drum tones. I I just, you know, it's just instinctively in me to, to want to get amazing sounding drums. And honestly, even if you're not a drummer, I think that if you're someone who's recording bands, you should be paying attention to these little details. And as you'll hear in this interview, Jacob definitely pays a lot of attention to these things. And it's all these little details that add up to get you the sound that you're after. So with that said, let's just jump right into today's interview. Jacob Herman, thank you so much for being on the Mastery Mix podcast. What's going on,
1: man? Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh it's going well. I'm I'm a bit tired. I've been uh walking around Gothenburg with two American guys or sorry, two uh American friends. Uh it's a couple actually. It's a singer called uh, Taylor Roberts uh who plays with um Riding with Killers and Taproot and he's uh, they arrived um this morning to be here for 3 weeks recording vocals for the um Writing with Killer's album, so they arrived this morning, and now they're in the apartment, just jet lagging and being tired and feeling shitty. So <laughs> they have a couple of days before we start the session, though, so it's good.
0: Well, that that's good as long as they've got that, because yeah, definitely recording, especially vocals, when you're jet lagged is is not oh, yeah. fun. Yeah,
1: <laughs> now for not fun for the for the
0: artist or for you as a producer, because it just makes it that much harder to coach them through that.
1: Yeah, it, it, it'll be fine. I have, I have. What is it like? Five days until we have to really start working, so it's all good. Yeah, you got lots of time then. Right they're on, gu- they're gonna like do some sightseeing and enjoy Gothenburg, and it's their first time here, so it'll be fun.
0: Well, you got to do that if you're gonna go abroad to record. You definitely have to make the most of that trip, and you know, not just record but explore the sites if you've never been there before too. So that's oh, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, for people who might not be familiar with you or your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on who you are, what you do, how you got started with all of this?
1: Uh I run I run my studio here in Gothenburg uh, called Top Floor Studios and um it's I've I've ran it for like the spot I am now I've been here for 10 years before I, before that I had two other spots uh, here in Gothenburg and I've been doing like this is basically all I've worked with um my whole life besides being like drum teching for bands and drum teching for other studios when i was younger and yeah that's basically it i used i used to be a drummer and a piano player um when i was playing and then at some point i had to make that choice like do i go on with try, try to pursue my career as a player or as a producer because i couldn't do both because they they kind of stepped on each other's toes so yeah. I made that decision. Uh, well, it's getting long ago. It's like 14, 15 years ago, I think.
0: Nice. So what got you into recording and all that stuff to
1: begin with? Was it just because of being in a band? or I started playing piano when I was five, and then I started playing drums when I was 15. And that band I had as a teenager, we we just started recording pretty early, um like home recording um and i would say that that's pretty early we started doing very basic home recordings in like 1996 wow were you doing like like four tracks or was it like, yeah like first a four stuff? track and then we used um one of the really early roland uh digital um little what 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 do you call them in the over there? Yeah,
0: like the uh, like the I know exactly. Like the, they were called like a digital workstation. Just yeah, like, it was like a little box where you could record into. I, I had one of those as well. So yeah, yeah I always love hearing people talk about work, working on the old Roland's.
1: Oh yeah, so that was the bass player's dad owned one, and we worked on that, and then we moved on to computer recording in in like the early versions of Cubase when it, Cakewalk it was called actually. Mm -hmm. And um, it it was very like sparse and very, very, um, you know, we couldn't do much, but it got me into not just recording, but it really got me into um, drum sounds like early in my, in my life because I started thinking why, why does it sound one way Acoustically, and why does it sound another way uh, when we record it? And this was, you know, I was 16, and I started elaborating with that, and I started messing with tuning and mic placement and whatever. And then we ended that band when our version, like the Swedish version of of high school, ended basically. And I moved to Gothenburg, and I started a music school. In the middle of Sweden, I I went there for two years and they had a a studio and they just happened to have one of those Roland digital workstations, but a better (laughs) one, like a bigger one. And so I was familiar with that and I just started recording other people and myself at that school, but we didn't have anything fancy so I had because it wasn't a, it was it wasn't a recording school it was a music school and they just happened to have a studio so I was getting really good at learning how to place microphones and tune in a certain way to get the sound that I wanted instead of working with I mean we didn't work with triggers at all back then but like I didn't even know what that was but also I didn't rely on EQ or compression or whatever, in those early days, I I was only working with mic placement and tuning, which taught me to be really good at tuning, but also how to find different sounds. Like, how do you find a a rock sound? How do you find a different kind of rock sound? How How do you find a jazz sound? How do you find a metal sound? Just by mic placement and tuning, and then... And, you know, drum head choices and whatever. And then after that, I started to work with EQ and compression and whatever, uh, which is what people usually start with. Yeah. Um, And after that school, when I was done there, I had saved up money and just started buying gear. And I was recording my own band. Like Then I had a new band. And at the same time i got fans telling me that oh you're you know your your drum sound is great can you can you come to the studio and help us with the tuning or mic placement or can you record our drums and then it was just happening pretty naturally um i decided very early like when i was a teenager that i was going to work with music um and it just happened to naturally move into recording and producing that's awesome that's how it happened so i was i was i was more known as a um, drum tech for other studios and other bands before people even knew that i had my own studio because i was i was building my by then pretty not very advanced studio and building it more and more but at the same time I was working with pretty big bands in in other studios because the studio owners and the bands called me up to come in and do tuning and mic placement and stuff so it it, it all That's came awesome. very naturally
0: yeah i mean it's definitely good to have that specialty obviously like you know as I'm sure your career evolved, you had to get into all the other instruments, but um, you know, having at least that foundational element to be known for, it's... I it's- mean, I was
1: always into the other instruments and sometimes it's annoying because some people still think that I only record drums because I had, <laughs> like, early on, I had a big name for, like, first in, you know, first in Gothenburg and then in Sweden and then in, like, internationally, but for drum sounds but I I was always doing all the other instruments it's just that since I was brought in to do drum work because recording drums is really really tricky and then recording a lot of drummers and they recorded the rest you know at home or in other studios people just started assuming that oh yeah he's this drum guru but they didn't realize that <laughs> I was doing other stuff as well like i recorded and produced all instruments so it it was it was good and bad
0: (laughs) yeah i I can totally relate to that one of my first studio jobs the studio operated in a bit of a weird way where like there were multiple engineers that worked there as like staff engineers but every time a band would come through it was kind of like they, they operated just as like shifts so like you had your shift and whatever instruments you were recording during that shift happened and uh for, for whatever reason, I was the only one there that knew how to record drums really well as well. So they were just like, okay, Mike, you get all the drum shifts. And I'm like, I kind of want to record other stuff too, you know? It's like fun yeah. to play with guitars and all that stuff. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from with it. Um, you, you brought up a really interesting uh, topic, which was that you were talking about how sometimes the sound of the drums in the room, or or any instrument in the room for that matter, can sound different in the room versus in the recording or underneath the microphone. And I'm curious to know, like, that that's definitely something that a lot of people struggle with. That, you know, they hear these great sounds in the room, but then when they put it under a mic, things can sound small or maybe thin, that kind of thing. Um, so when it comes to getting settings for your drums or for any other instrument for that matter, how do you typically go about approaching that so that you're getting the the sound that you kind of hear in your head or at least in the room to to translate through the microphone?
1: I don't work with rooms like that. I I'm not trying to make it sound good in the room even though it usually does but it's it's not that's not important what's important is only what it sounds like through the mic and even if it sounds like one way in the room and you think like oh yeah this is you know this sounds awesome and whatever it's there's so many things that happen in the room that is not happening through the mic. Even if you mic the room, you know you should always mic the room. But no matter how you mic the room, and for, I mean, first of all, you feel you feel the drums in the room. You don't feel the drums through a microphone. Mm-hmm. Um And in the in the room, you experience the drums in a different way. Um. And you get that impact that room mics don't really get. For me, it was more like a trial and error for years to like translate, basically. If it sounds like this in the room, or if it sounds like this when I'm up close to the drums, if I'm sitting behind the drums and it sounds in a certain way, what will it sound like in um, the microphone? Like, in the DAW. To me, that was always the big... Like, I was working with... um, I'm not going to name them in case they're listening, but I was working with a really big um, band from Sweden, and we were working with the the drums and the miking in the room, and I knew what I wanted, and I knew... Like, this was long ago. This was when another studio brought me in as a drum tech. And I, I knew what I wanted, and we we talked about the sound, and I was working only from, like, experience. Like, if I do this with a drum, it's going to sound like this, and I know this. And we're, we're aiming for this, and therefore I'm going to make these choices and whatever. And that's everything from drum head choice to placement of mics to angle of the room mics to... Uh, outboard EQ on the on the mics to the angles of the mics to how the, you know, the tuning and dampening or whatever. And then the drummer said, that doesn't sound very good. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah but, you know, just play it. And he played it and he came into the control room and he listened to it. And all we did was play it through a bus compressor, that was it. Everything else was <laughs> ready and he was blown away. That that says a lot that I mean he he has recorded many albums and he he just didn't he was always we talked about it after and he, he said I'm always trying to make the drums sound acoustically as I want them to sound in the in the like through the speakers and I never do that because it it doesn't make sense, it doesn't work like that microphones doesn't work like that, our ears mm-hmm. doesn't work like that and also it's a, it's a blend you know um, depending on what kind of drum sound you're going for but sometimes it's a blend of 3 mics and sometimes it's a blend of 30 mics but it's always going to be something else that we're not hearing if you want to be um, serious about I mean that goes for all sounds, but drum sounds the most because it's so much happening at the same time, or maybe live recordings too, um, um, when everything is happening in the in the room. But like spending that time and getting good at knowing how a sound translates through the mic, just by. Yeah, basically by knowing it because you it's a trial and error for so long that's that's the only way i think you learn you can work in theory for for to an extent and knowing like if if that guy said if i do like this it will get this result but there's always these small nuances and small changes and small differences that make the difference between good and really good or really good and awesome or whatever and you can't like you have to have that trial and error if you want to get really good at something, and yeah. I think that my assistant or my former assistant um he he's he's always annoyed at me that I can talk to him and tune a drum kit at the same time, so we're <laughs> we're talking and i don't i i i don't even need to hit the drums to like know and then I hit the drums and I do the fine tuning and it's over in five minutes and and he gets annoyed. Like, you've shown me how you do it and I've tried it and I'm getting better at it but you're sitting there and talking to me about, you know, whatever and tuning the (laughs) drums and it's done in five minutes and it sounds great. And I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't always like that, you know? That's something you have to accomplished just by doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And then you have the next step, learning how the translation from what you're hearing at the drum sound drum kit sounds like through the mic. Because there always has to be a, a vision for the sound. Mm-hmm. Like we're going for, you, know, you hear something in your head or you have an example or whatever. So you don't just end up with a sound that may be good, but it's not what you were going for. I mean, yeah. I, I can say that Toto has a great drum sound. I can say that Metallica Black Album has a great sound. And I can say that Led Zeppelin has a great sound. That's three great drum sounds. But they're very different. And if you would put the, the Zeppelin sound on the Toto or the Toto sound on Metallica and you know, so on and so on, and it will just be weird. So it's not only about doing a good drum sound, it's about doing uh, the right one. And knowing how to do that comes from learning when I do this choice and all the choices after uh, about the drums, then it's going to translate like this through the microphones. And yeah, that that, that. Only, that only comes through just doing it and doing it and doing it. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, uh,
0: it, it's something that I always stress with a lot of my students too, is like, you have to have that vision of what you want it to sound like before you start. Because if you don't, Yeah. You're, you're kind of just like hoping to almost like fix it in the mix. And it's like, sometimes you can only go so far in a mix. So you have to like have a clear plan of what you want it to be. That way you can, you know, like you said, like be tuning for the microphones and like, you know, making sure that the way it comes through these microphones sounds the way you wanted it to. And, you know, you're not going to end up having to rely on samples later on to make up for a sound that you could have ultimately got in the recording stage. So um, I love that you brought up that, that point there. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting, too, because, yeah, it's like it's one of those things where I've seen it many times, too, where drummers just like have this or, or even guitar players, for that matter. It's like you get this great sound in the room and you're like you said, you, you're feeling it and you're moved by all that energy that's live in the room. But then yeah, you come into the studio or you come into the, c- the control room and you hear it under the mic and it sounds totally different. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up like all of those little uh, points that go into the drums that that contribute to the sound and why it's not just about making it sound good in the room it's it's making it react to the microphones and you know ultimately fulfilling that vision that you have
1: yeah but it's 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 kind of self-explanatory in a way because a drum never sounds like a drum even if even if you want like the most natural drum sound ever like a jazz drum sound and you mic the kit with like two three mics or you even do a 60s Beetle style, and you mic the drums with one mic. Um, mm. It's never gonna sound the same if you like. You have to listen from where the mic is, and you have to, be, but you can't. Like you can't, you can't set a, a room mic and put it in the ceiling and stand by the drums and make the decision on that. Like you have to, absolutely. You have to put the mic up there, record it, run into the control room, listen, learn what happens when you move the angle or whatever, like all these. And then imagine doing that with 30 mics when you're, you know, close-miking a splash cymbal or uh, finding the right angle for a China cymbal or you have a drum set up with six toms and you have to close-mic all of those. And if you're hearing the tom from where you're sitting behind the drum kit, That's not how the mic hears the drum. The mic hears the drum from, you know, one inch away. Of course. So it's that the trial and error and learning by doing is crucial, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So when you're getting started with a project and you're recording some drums, then um, where do you typically begin as far as like dialing in those tones or, or helping to fulfill that vision? Is it just a matter of having a conversation with the band ahead of time? Oh, yeah. Kind of establish like what they're looking for.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, always that conversation. And it's also a, a, a question about words. If you have a band with five members and you ask, what do you want this, the drums to sound like? And the drummer says, I want it to sound fat. And the guitar is like, yeah, fat drums. And the singer's like, yeah, fat. And bass player, fat. Everyone's <laughs> like, yeah, fat drums. Okay, what is that? And mm-hmm. then you start to talk about it and you realize that the drummer means that fat drums to to the drummer is when there's a lot of impact in that first attack. And then the bass player is like, no, 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 fat drums is like when when they're big and they're like, you know, long room or long whatever, and the singer's like, no, no, "No, you're both wrong. Fat drums is when it's like a lot of bottom, and there's a lot of low end, and you realize that you're using the same word, but you're talking about completely different things, and you have to you have to talk about what it is that you want, uh, and it can be such an easy thing to start with, you know, do you want the snare to ring?" but you can't say it like that because then every band is going to go, no, 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 no ringy snare because (laughs) the thing is ringy snare is going to sound like St. Anger. And I will say that I think that St. Anger has a great snare sound. Um, (laughs) Love it. I think it's a super cool uh, drum sound on that album. So you have that conversation about length of the drums. Like, should they be short or long? Snare, ringy? Tuning high or low, uh, frequencies, uh, impact. um, Like you have to talk about what it is that you're after. Maybe I have a thought about it. Maybe they have a thought about it. And then after that, you just start doing it. Like nowadays to me, like I, I can just start doing it right away. And I can usually tell drummers, you know, I asked do you want, want to use my drums if we're here or if we're in another studio, like if I'm in the States and recording or whatever, like what drums are you bringing? What drums are at the studio? And what sound are we after? And sometimes I realize that what we have and how it's going to sound isn't compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when when all the gear is there and it's the right gear, uh, then we can just start working. And that's me <laughs> doing my thing, like tuning and <laughs> miking and whatever. It's a tedious uh, first day, but if you want a really good drum sound, it's just now nowadays, nowadays it's it's easier because now I want now I now I know what I want and I also know how to get it. That was a the Who quote that I didn't mean to happen. Uh, no, sorry, Sex Pistols. God save the Queen. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. Um, but I do know what I want, and I know how to get it, but like <laughs> you just start doing it, yeah, and it's it can be like there's so many things about it the bleed from the symbols, or like I said, how to close mic a china everyone, mm-hmm. everyone d- just does what they've seen in photos and they just aim everything at the sound source because they're like, well, it's a mic, and you aim it at the thing you want to record, and I'm just like, have you ever tried it?' other ways sometimes it works <laughs> like that but very often it doesn't work like that if you want to close yeah. mic a china you shouldn't aim it at the china like it's you know and that took me a while to realize but
0: on the note of that ch- on the note of the china then it, you said not to just point the microphone at the china how would you mic a china so that you would get a,
1: c- a certain sound depends on how you want it to sound uh, when i do workshops i get i get always get these questions like how do you do this and i'm the most horrible Uh, workshop person because i always say well it depends and they're like just give me the answer (laughs) but for instance if you want to have a china sound like a china you have to realize that it's going to be heard through the overheads and it's going to be heard through the room mics and it's going to be heard through other mics uh, if you don't like supergate everything, but even even if you do, it's it's many mics that m- work together. So you can't just mic it and done. It, you have to think like how is it going to work with the other mics. Um, but if you want that impact of the china and you want it to uh, that spot mic to add to the overhead mic, for instance, uh, if you aim it at the china from underneath or above first of all the china often moves and when the china moves the part of the symbol that moves towards the mic that's basically imagine if i would record a singer and i would do this with a mic like moving moving it back and forth to the sound source or a guitar cab or whatever <laughs> that's what happens when you aim a mic at a symbol and the symbol moves um which is kind of stupid so you have to find a spot at the symbol where it doesn't move which is usually this side middle that angle where you know so it's almost like shooting across the symbol yeah exactly i know people can't see me but like i'm trying to show it here but it it doesn't translate well through uh, audio but even if you find that spot and you aim the mic at the china in order for that to not sound gongy like you get a tone because there are so many overtones in a in a symbol And the closer you get, you're gonna hear like dong and you think like, but it sounds like when I'm hitting it, yeah, but I'm so far away. So in order to get rid of that gonginess, I have to move the mic away. But then it doesn't then it's not a China mic anymore. Then it turns into a third overhead mic, you know? Mm -hmm. So then I have to move away from the gonginess, but not move away from the China, which means I have to aim it across the China and look away from, like, you have to... It it needs to be close to the China, but not look at the China, basically.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a a great way to break it down. And it makes a lot of sense, because, yeah, if you're trying to... uh, Yeah, I think the perfect analogy, like you said there, like, it just it's waving, so it's getting closer to the mic and then further away, and you're getting that kind of wobbliness of of frequencies. Yeah, and And uh, that
1: happens if you're crashing a ride, or if you're... uh, close-miking, uh, any, any any cymbals or anything yep. that moves, really. Um, and you just have to, you know, where is the drummer hitting it? So I have to find that spot where it doesn't move. And I uploaded a picture on uh, one of the forums on uh, Facebook for a uh, audio community. And I just wrote, like, hey, think, think about that. You know, don't aim it so it looks cool. Or don't mic it so it looks cool. Mic it so it sounds cool. And someone told me that that's the stupidest way to <laughs> mic a China I've ever seen.
0: Well, the internet's always right, right? Oh, yeah. Internet is always
1: <laughs> right. And, you know, the guy working at whatever, not a studio, can tell me um, that I'm wrong. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of internet, right? But yeah. um, so I just uh, uploaded... A couple of clips from that session of just that China mic. And uh, he had to admit that it sounded pretty badass. And, you know, he <laughs> said, like, that it. that didn't sound like I was imagining it at all. You know, it wasn't so I could thump my chest and be like, oh, I was right. But it's like there there's a point to thinking about what you're doing before doing it. If you're aiming a mic, What what is the mic looking at? That's how I see it. Like Mike looks at things. But like what what is the mic hearing and how is it hearing it and is it looking or is it aimed towards other symbols so it's gonna be bleed from other symbols? Is there any other way you can do it? So sometimes I do drum setups where the mics they look it looks kind of funny, but it really works. And um it lessens the bleed. It adds to the focus. It takes away the bad overtones. It, it, like, it, it, all these things. And that just, that's, that just comes from, like, I didn't have anyone teach me stuff. I just did things over and over and over because when you're young, you, you have like this mindset of you can just go. I don't have that energy anymore, but luckily now I, I know more about what I'm doing, <laughs> but like, it, it's, Again, the trial and error just of course you know you ha you, that's the only way to get good at anything you can yeah. i can I can read theory about how to play guitar all I want, but if I don't touch a guitar, you know or if I practice now and then, but I read every book about guitar, so i'm not going to be a good guitar player yeah for sure it's the, it's the same thing with the recording,
0: yeah, so it's interesting because like when you you bring up that that uh, visual of the symbol kind of moving up and down and getting closer and further away from the microphone. Um, you know, you can make the same argument that with overheads, the same thing would happen because the symbols would be moving closer and further away from the microphones as well. So do you yeah, think a similar approach? Yeah, but then they're
1: so far away. Okay. Uh, it is the thing though, you can't aim overhead mics and that that's why sometimes you need more than two over, overhead mics, but you can't aim the overhead mics at certain spots over symbols because you will get a, a a tiny bit of that weird movement thing um, mm-hmm. so but it's not at all as obvious as when you spot mic something
0: that makes sense the distance definitely comes in there so when you're setting up your overheads are you typically um I guess there's two schools of thought when it comes to overheads. Some people like to think of their overheads as more symbol mics, and then other people think of their overheads as like a, an entire kit right. kit kind of mic. Um, what's your personal approach there?
1: That depends, again. <laughs> as always, <laughs> there, that, okay. yeah, as always <laughs> just that's my answer. In there. <laughs> uh, yeah, you walked right into that one. Yeah. No, I mean, it does depend. Again, I think like this. Don't learn one thing. Try to be... Try to have a palette of many colors or many techniques. Like your toolbox has to contain many screwdrivers. A true like fine carpenter or, you know, they don't have one hammer. They have five hammers for different approaches. It's the same thing with us. Even if it's the same genre, it's it's still different bands different drummers different songs you know it's and also how how are these mics going to work together with the other mics so that's a very common question oh do you do ab or do you do xy or and i'm like that i do all of them <laughs> uh i mean sometimes i even do several i did when we recorded the there's a swedish band called vildjarta um it's uh, the um, producer and mixing engineer Buster Odeholm, who's the drummer there. Uh, he's really good at what he does, and he he mixed that album as well. Um, but for that drum sound, when when he and I talked about how we wanted it to sound, I ended up miking it with an XY and an AB. Um. And the AB were in Omni mode. And Mm. that was the best way to get the cymbal sound that we wanted. And then after that, I saw online that someone wrote in a forum that that was my technique, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Like, I don't have a technique. (laughs) That was just a thing that I did and it worked really well. And then that doesn't mean that it will work well if I do it again or if someone else does it. Like you can't think like that. You have to mm-hmm. do what sounds best. And in that situation, that sounded best. It was weird seeing that someone said that, oh yeah, Jacob Herman's dual overhead technique. I'm like, what? What's this? And I, I read about <laughs> it. And I was like, no, this is weird. Um But I love that. It de- it depends. How how are you gonna build your drum sound? Are you building it? by um like do you want your overheads to be cymbal mics then you should do that but then on the next album do you want your overhead to be kit mics and then you do that there's no there's no right or wrong mm-hmm. when it comes to choosing it but there is a right or wrong depending on what drum sound you want
0: fair so if you were to go the route of uh making them more cymbal mics instead of like the full kit mics um what approaches might you take to, to achieve that kind of thing would
1: it be the kind of like closer positioning or further positioning that depends on how the drum sound the drum set looks like if the if yeah. it's a, if it's a drummer with you know one ride and two crashes but they're really spread apart then not if i want the overheads to not be so wide i would probably try an xy first and But if if it's a drummer with a bunch of mics, or sorry, a bunch of cymbals, uh, and it's spread out, or sorry, it's not spread out; it's very tight. But I want it to sound a bit wider, then I would go A B. And sometimes, if it's a lot of cymbals and it's spread out, and I need to control it better, then I do. Sometimes, sometimes I do three overhead mics and sometimes gotcha. that's um three cardioid mics working together and sometimes that's two cardioid mics and one uh, omni mic on the side um and like i said sometimes it happens to be one xy and one ab and the ab are omni like it, there there's yeah there's many ways yeah for sure no i love it i you know
0: i i uh I know that for you, you have that experience of kind of knowing your your go to things to maybe experiment with. So that's that's what I'm trying to like dig in and, and uh, learn the situational approach that you that like you know what kind of checklist you go but through. But that's
1: what it that's what it is every time. It's the same with fair when I get the question, how do you angle your snare mic? And the <laughs> the obvious answer is it depends on what sound you're after. How yeah. do how do you angle your tom mics? It obviously depends on what sound you're after but it also depends on what does the drum set looks look like the the tom angle that worked for one sound and i'm thinking huh, i want to do that again maybe i can't do it again because the drum is different or the cymbals are placed differently so the bleed will be uh, sounding differently or you know there's many mm-hmm. factors to it but most of all it's about the the snare sound that worked for one drummer doesn't work for the next drummer you always have to you always have to start with what you're doing what is the song what is the album what is the sound but what is the drummer what is the drum setup how how will that affect everything else um mm-hmm. so there's there's no there's no like you can only do this angle with the with the snare mic or of you course. can you can only use this snare mic that's that's just stupid um you have to be able to adapt uh, to get a certain sound. Sometimes two different techniques will get me the same sound because everything else is different, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, lo- I I love that, and I think that's I think that's a really interesting part of this conversation. Is that it's it's it is trying to understand the nuances that really make a big difference in the end. And you know when you when you are when you really are considering all of those little minute details that all add up it you know it, it really does get you the sound that you're ultimately after but you just have to understand what those little details are and different experiments to try to to achieve them
1: i could i could sit here and talk about certain techniques all day long and 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 talk about how like oh if you do this you're going to get this result but first of first of all and it's not true. Because, like I said, different different situations, right? Uh second of all, like that doesn't matter. Like I still I still like uh, finding new ways of doing things. And I have colleagues who uh are the same and sometimes we'll will talk. And sometimes I, you know, I love working together with others, and sometimes I work with someone, and either that person or me says wow, what what did you do there? Like, that's interesting. And, you know, I explain what I did or they explain what they did and why and what the end result will be. And then I think, oh, that's cool. I need to try that and bring it into my toolbox. And then I have to, you know, go home and try it out a couple of times. And then when I feel like I've mastered it or feel like, okay, I now I know, how to use this in a in, in a context and then i have added that to my toolbox which is now huge mm-hmm. you know that's how i feel like yeah now i have a big toolbox and that's what i think it it should be sometimes it's it's you know it's the, it's the combination of knowledge and how to apply it that i think for me matters how do you tune drums well, it depends, you know. Again, <laughs> um, really annoying. No, but but it, but to me, it sounds like
0: you, I understand what you're saying with this, and, and and I definitely feel like you know, just just as a like a, a role play example, like you were talking about how you know that band they they use the word fat, and it could mean like five different things to different people. Yeah. Let's say that in the end, I mean, you kind of broke it down and you said that, you know, fat could be described as like a combination of tuning or sustain or attack or ring. And those are kind of like the main elements that would make up that sound. Um, So if a drummer were to say to you like, OK, I really love uh, low tuned drums that have not that much sustain, but, you know, quite a bit of attack to them um, that, you know, they don't ring out too much. Like based on that knowledge, and let's say let's say you've got like the drum kit I got behind me, like a DW, something like that. Um based off of that knowledge, like what would maybe be like some of your 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 initial starting point microphones or something like that? Or like, you know, what what would you do to kind of achieve that kind of sound? Why
1: why what why would you want a drum that's not ringy? Like do you do you want that short sound? Are you gonna add reverb to it?
0: Fair okay so uh, yeah this i guess this is what i'm kind of curious about like understanding that p- process of like you know understanding the questions that you would ask to get even even deeper of an explanation of what fat <laughs> could mean right
1: yeah i mean are we talking modern metal drums or punk drums or you know also what's if there is ring um sometimes ring is a part of a drum sound and you don't realize that it is but if you take it away it's gonna sound bad. Like yeah. sometimes sometimes you you want the ring without noticing it. Um sometimes I, I you know you show that to to drummers and, and bands and they, they say, no the we don't like the long toms and they put duct tape on all the toms and it just sounds like shit. And then you make the drum sound long but the the there's a pitch drop in the toms. So the toms don't go doom, it goes doom. And then the sound is long, but the ear perceives it as as short because that initial note drops and then you don't feel or you don't hear the length but you feel it. Um which means that the length make the drums perceived as bigger and Maybe that's what they meant when they said fat, but if you really want short drums and you don't want to work with the ring and work with the like dynamics processing uh, with the ring, which I think that you know, often people like the ringy drums. They they just don't realize it, and then mm-hmm. they get. I think one of the biggest mistakes when recording drums is that you're killing the sound because you're afraid that the drums are ringing instead of realizing that ringing drums can be really good and you just have to think about what will happen with that ring in the mixing process or what will happen with that ring when I work with outboards or is there a note in there that I can um, nudge out and that will mean the sound will be just what i want it's just mm. maybe it's not the ring maybe it's just that overtone that i can shape or take out in other ways and that will make the drum better but if yeah. you you know often that's what what when when people say they don't like ring often you challenge that and you show some examples and they realize like holy shit i love ringing drums you know <laughs>
0: Yeah, it really it really does come back down to like, you know, like you said early on, it's just you're really making it sound you're you're putting in all those elements to make it sound good in the recording and not in the room. And, you know, just really figuring out what uh, what ultimately complements the mix.
1: Yeah. But if you do want the if you do want the short drums, then you have to think about what is it that you want? Because want, drums are ringy. Mm-hmm. by you know drums will ring that's what drums do Um, do you want to dampen it and then how do you dampen it because uh, if you just put a strip on of, of um duct tape on a tom for instance you're, you're not you're not really killing the sustain you're just killing the overtones and maybe the overtones you want but you don't want the sustain so then it's better to to make like a, a ball of duct tape you just take a strip of duct tape Roll and you it up. yeah you 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 just smash smash it together but with the sticky side out and then you take that ball of of duct tape and you just s- stick it right on the on the bottom head that will like kill the sustain but it will keep the overtones uh of the batter head in the microphone that's one that's thing, very cool you know
0: yeah, that's great. Like, I, I love that kind of tip because it's it's something that uh, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, like like you said earlier, a lot of people see those photos online of like this is the setup, and you know that's a Jacob Urban sound. <laughs> that's how he does it, and and it's like you know it's it's really understanding you know the goal here was to reduce the sustain, but keep the overtones that kind of thing. So yeah, um, I mean just just with
1: duct tape alone, you know, I have like. Five, six different techniques of dampening a drum, and they look different, and they sound different, and they give different results. Um, but there's there's other things you can do. You can you can put like you can put stuff inside the drums, like the old classic trick of putting uh, cotton balls inside your floor toms. It it really makes it. You know, there's nothing that sounds like it, and it sounds so natural. Because when you hit the drums, they bounce up and then they lie down on the floor of the drums, so to say. Um, and it just mellows out the ring in a, in a very certain way that you can't do with duct tape or moon, moon gel. Mm-hmm. But it's also about the, the angle of the mic. Like again, just like with the China, what, what, what is the mic looking at? Are you looking at the edge of the drum head? Are you looking at the center of the drum head? Um, are you looking in over the rim, or are you outside the rim? Like, there's so many factors to getting that that sound, and how much or little ring are we looking for here? And something, yes. you know, it's it's not like I just do and be done. Sometimes I have to. I usually tell drummers to play uh, back in black when we sound check. And it's always funny because it starts really like, okay, let's do back in black because then I have kick and snare, and I have it's the it's the a good length in that tempo between the hits so I can hear the sustain in a good way like I hear what's happening in the room mics and the ringing and whatever, and um, which is great. So it's always back in black, and it starts with go <laughs> go and they even go kaku 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 kaku, you know <laughs> and and then after 5 minutes it sounds like because <laughs> they they got bored and they started you know and then i push the talk back back in black and they go back go and that's fine that's just you know i get it as long as you play well during the sound check i can i can focus on things and then i say okay back in black but with tom fills Tom fills all the time. And then I can listen to the toms and I can listen to how is the bleed in the toms. So when the toms are playing, I can solo the toms And when the, uh, when there's a fill. And when the, there's, when the toms are not playing, I can solo the toms and listen to how the bleed is, which is great. I can't do that when I say, okay, tom one tom two, because then I don't hear the bleed, and then I'm going to have to come back to it after. Also, I don't hear playing on the toms, I just hear, like, sterile hits, which is not what we're going to record. And, you know, then I have to, like, okay, okay, hold on, I'm coming in, and the drummer stops playing, I go into the recording room, and I move a mic a little, or I, you know, change the angle, or I do a retuning, like, ah, that that didn't work for me. Sorry, I have to redo this. Okay, let's try again. Back in black. And then we're back to back in black. (laughs) Um, Move through the kick. It's not like I do, okay, I did the kick. Now I do the, uh, well, I do it like that, but I'm on the overheads. And then I realize, like, nah, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't work well with the snare. I have to do, do I move the overheads or do I... Move the snare mic, or do I retune? Or like sometimes I have to redo things. Uh, so it's it's like back and forth. Um, it's just that it, with the years, it's 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 much more accurate now that I get where I want, and it gets better. But it's 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 still like ah, that didn't work like I thought, or I thought that was going to sound different, and then you go in and you retune, or you you realize that. Tom three needs another kind of treatment uh, than Tom four. I thought they were going to sound the same, but for some reason that that's not the case here. And there can be many reasons for that. Um, And then I have to do some adjustment like no, there's a ringing tone. Like let's say the, the first floor Tom is a 14 and the second floor Tom is a 16, a 14 and a 16 sounds very different. Just Mm -hmm. like a 10 and 12 sounds very different. So Pretty often, I have to I have to tame the fourteen in another way that the sixteen don't need. What people usually do because people want things to be pretty, right? So they moon gel or whatever on the on on the first floor tom. They have to put it on the second.
0: <laughs> it's like OCD just kicks in, <laughs> even though it doesn't
1: sound well good. It, it's it sounds better when just the fourteen has one, but not the sixteen. And they're like, no, nope. in their mind. They're not even going to try it. They're they're thinking, okay, the 14 sounds bad, so I'm just going to go in and put moon gel on. And they put one on the 14 and the 16 because that just makes sense, uh, aesthetically. But we're not, you know, that's not what we're doing. So
0: yeah, no one's no one's watching your drums while listening to the album. Like they're, you know, they only hear, they only hear what they hear unless it's a live show. I guess. Yeah. But, sometimes yeah. I
1: sometimes sometimes I joke and say, okay, take your photos for Instagram now because I'm gonna mess it up. Uh, <laughs> but um usually I you, I mean I like to make it pretty too. I'm I'm a total gear geek. So of course I want I want the drums to be shiny and pretty and good looking and that for all the all the pictures and m- myself but um I can't make that my first priority is what I was Of course that
0: that's that's the Facebook debate that you got into, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah, it might
1: not look might not look pretty,
0: but it it sounds great. I love that and, and I think, um, I think that that back in black example is a really great point to bring up because it it really is about mixing or or tracking things in context. And I think that that's a great example of how to do that uh, effectively. Um I'm curious to know, like do you when it comes to you like producing a record, do you typically start with drums? first or have you ever tried drums at the very end of the project like after all the guitars have been recorded to like really understand the concert or like how oh yeah it all works I, was in, uh, I was just in
1: i was just in new orleans and recording with um a band called cane hill um a really good drummer called devin clark he recorded drums after everything else was recorded which was interesting which is fine, you know? Um, it works for their style of music.
0: I would think that, like, that approach would be more in line with the way you would like to work because, you know, with, with this idea of, you know, making sure that it's fitting in the context of the songs and stuff like that, I, I would think that if you heard all the guitars and the bass and all the other layers that were in there, it would maybe help influence the, the decisions you're making to fit the yeah, music more. Yeah, but
1: that's what pre-production is for. Fair. You know, if, if there's... Uh, I always prefer to have uh, demo tracks, even if we start with the drums. If there's demo tracks or if, if, if the band can do some some quick uh, scratch guitar tracking at least. Um, but the more context I have, the better. But if they want me to produce and it's just demo tracks, um, very often it's like, oh, let's change this or this this chuggy thing should be triplets or... You know, we change what the what the guitars are gonna do, for instance, and then when they record the guitars for real, then they are changed. But that's also something that often happens in pre-production when I'm involved in that as well. Um, yeah. Sometimes there's like there's a band called Screamer, like we did pre-production and drum recording, and then they worked with the other tracks themselves. And then uh, my colleague, Hendrik Udd, mixed it. But they really liked working with the pre-production. They thought that was just as important as the drum recording because then they they saw their songs in another light and with other ears. And mm-hmm. that affected the music a lot. But I mean, same thing now with Kane Hill, even when we recorded the drums last um it turned it turned into a drum production a lot where we changed what was there, but it was always for the better like the song mm-hmm. the songs really benefited from those changes but that was a that was a good collaboration between me and Devin the drummer and their guitar player um yeah. so yeah, I mean sometimes sometimes you record the drums last even sometimes you mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes you re- record everything just to make sure it works and it doesn't has to, it doesn't have to be so well recorded to get a context like it's more like a pre-production yeah. then you yeah. record the drums and then you re-record the rest but but well and then you can make some changes and Sometimes you do it like back and forth. Sometimes it's more, yeah, we're going to work with a song, and then we're going to work with another song. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, it doesn't always have to be drums only for like, yeah, 10 songs yeah. no, and... you can
1: do song by song. Sometimes it's like I recorded another band called Lullwater, I did their uh album called Voodoo, and it's that was a really fun recording. We had four weeks of recording everything except vocals and then we did 10 days vocals and we put up like stations in the studio uh so we had a percussion station we had guitar stations we had the drums were up and we had overdub station and all these stations basically and we could go back and forth we could do pre-production on a song and then go right into drum recording if we we felt like it which was great and so, and cool. sometimes we would do drums on on three songs and the drummer's like I'm done like I I I I need to rest. Okay, that's fine. We're going to do some bass now or we're you know, we're going to do some overdubs for that song that we almost finished. Like that back and forth with the the different stations. That was really fun. So, yeah. There's there's no, you know, you have to do it like this. Same thing there. You can do it in many different ways. Yeah,
0: that's cool. I like that. So with all of this emphasis on really getting the drum sounds nailed at the source, how often do you find yourself adding samples
1: in a mix? When I mix? Yeah. Fairly often, but not in the way... Like, sometimes it's... I mean, I've added samples in a jazz recording. And no one would ever know. I don't think they will listen to this podcast, but if they do... (laughs)
0: But they probably don't sound like machine guns.
1: Yeah, and also they don't know who I'm that I'm talking about them, so it's fine. But um, like sometimes, sometimes you need to add samples to make the ghost notes sound good, you know. And mm-hmm. then you only add samples to the ghost note, um, because you know they weren't played like they should or whatever. As I don't, I don't really care as long as it sounds like drums. To me, I mean, every, everyone's different and, and I don't... Like, sometimes I work with bands and I, I even tell them that I don't want to mix this because I think you should mix with, you know, this person because that person would make it a really good job. And also then I get to work with... Together with colleagues, which is great. Um, but like I can I can get excited about someone mixing my stuff um because I think they're really good. I don't care if I have to add it and I don't have a technique there either. Uh sometimes I work with my own drum plugins like I just turn it into MIDI and and use uh, Superior Drummer cuz then I can use my own kits that I made for uh superior drummer and AC, easy drummer with tune track, which is fun. And sometimes I just want to throw on like, I guess that happened more before I did the kits for tune track, because I did three of them. So there's a lot of like the things I usually add there. Um, but like I, I would, and i still do sometimes it's just like you throw on trigger and you just want that certain thing um and sometimes you custom make samples from the session and you use those mm-hmm. for the mixing um sometimes it's it's there need there needs to be a certain ring in the snare drum for instance that that's a that's a thing where i where I sometimes like samples there's a certain ring that I want in the snare drum, but I can't get that ring acoustically I can get some of it, but not all of it and not the ring I'm after because uh I can't layer a snare drum in real time, so I'm using two different rings basically um or I need the I like the ring, but I need another impact, but I can't make the drum I can't make the snare drum sound like two drums at the same time. So I can't have the drum that sounds like two different drums. So I want to layer them, so I have to choose which one am I recording and which one am I am I using a sample for. Um and sometimes it's impossible to do it because of the bleed. So you know, as as long as it's it's interesting, though, because sometimes when people hear stuff I've done and they say, oh, yeah, that what, what samples are those? I said, no, there's no samples. Like, there's no samples in this mix. And then they hear another artist, another production, and they say, I really love the natural drum sound, that it's no samples. And I said, <laughs> no, no, there are samples for sure. Like this, you know. It's it's interesting.
0: That's probably that's uh, the sign of a good way of like, like you know it's a sign that you've added samples in a, in a good way where it's not like super obvious. And I guess sometimes you you want them
1: to be super obvious as well, and, and it's an effect, right? And sometimes it's it's both. Sometimes the the drum sound is so depending on like I'm not a fan of when it's you know you only save the overheads and you replace everything else because that to me. Well, it depends on the genre, but sometimes you make that sound where you half of the sound is is acoustic and half of the sound is is samples, and if you take away the samples, it sounds not as it should, but if you take away the acoustic drums, then it sounds not as it should either. And Mm -hmm. that, I think, is pretty cool, when they work together like a good symbiosis, like the samples bring something that the acoustic can't like, it's just like, I can't make that happen, but I need to make the acoustic sound in a certain way for the samples to sound good. And that is sometimes cool to work with. Like I'm not against samples like that. It's sometimes cool to work with acoustic drums to um, make them work together with samples. And then that's what you're, you know, then that's what you're um, aiming for when you, when you're, setting the sound no no matter sure. if it's me mixing or someone else but it's good to have that conversation before you know the style it's going to be or the, the type of mix it's going to be so yeah
0: that's cool I love that Um you had mentioned your drum sample packs that you have with TuneTrack and uh, you have a few different options out there and there's tons of different drum sounds in there Um and I think it really kind of uh, shows you know, everything we're talking about here, where you can really shape sounds just by different combinations of things. There's a lot of variety on, on those packs, which is very cool. Um, for people who might be not recording real drums, but are using sample packs like this, do you have any tips for how to program drums to sound realistic? No. <laughs> <Fair. I> don't- <laughs> Ed,
1: we're done. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't program drums that often. And when I do, I don't aim for it to sound super natural because it's usually when I'm working with a pre-production or a songwriting gotcha. process. Um I just, you know, I I need to throw together a really cool groove or something that I know like this is going to work fine. This is just a blueprint. But if I use MIDI when adding to like if I'm mixing something, it's it's adding to the sound of using, um, for instance, one of the tun track hits. And I think it has so much to do with velocity um, to make it sound realistic. But honestly, there are so many people that are way more experienced when it comes to programming drums uh, than me. I, I think I, I think I'm the wrong guy to ask. Honestly,
0: it, it's funny. Everyone who I've talked to that has a sample pack of their own, it, every time I ask that question, they have the same answer. It's like I, I'm, I'm a drummer. I just play, you know. So
1: <laughs> I, I recorded the sample packs, or I was asked to record the sample tracks because I'm good at recording drums, not because I'm good at using sample packs.
0: Fair, yeah. I'm not yeah, good at sense. like
1: I'm I'm not good at programming drums, but I'm good at recording drums, and that's what they need. Because yeah, you know.
0: It's, it's, yeah, it's preserving
1: a sound more than it is like a tool that I mean the the, the programming someone else can do I used I use it a lot, but I use it for what I do and I don't I don't program drums because I don't work with you know
0: yeah 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 you, you've got the facility to be able to record real drums and you've got the skills to get great drum sound so you're gonna you're gonna use that so that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. yeah, awesome. Cool, man. Well, I think that this is probably a good spot to start to wrap things up. If people want to learn more about you, maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best place for them to go to, to learn more?
1: My studio. Um, awesome. but, it, <laughs> but if they want to look me up first, they can go to www.topfloorstudios.com uh, or, you know, Top Floor Studios on Instagram or Top Floor Studios on Facebook. It's the same name everywhere. Or look me up, Jacob with a K, Herman, H E R R M A N N. That's probably where will find most you. most just people find me. Name. Yeah, just as I, I I met this guy once at at the Nam Music Fair, and he had a business card, and all it said was his name, nothing else. Not what he worked <laughs> with, not for what company he worked with, not what he did. Nothing, no email, no phone number, no address, no tagline, no slogan. It was just his name. That was it. And I'm like, okay, great. He gave it to me. And I'm like, okay, great. There's not much info here. And he said, <laughs> if people re- really want to work with me, they can Google me. Like, here's yeah, I love <laughs> he-, he basically goes, here's a- here's a piece of paper with my name. If you really want to work with me, you can Google me. I thought that was hilarious and cool. I'm not that guy though, so I do have all my info <laughs> on, my, on my cards. But you know, if, yeah, if people. I, no, I
0: love that approach though. Let, let the internet speak for itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. But yeah. you know,
1: it's usually, if, if you want to find me, you'll find me, I guess.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll also add the links in the show notes of this episode. Oh, too, I appreciate so that. Make it. Make it a little bit easier for people as well. So that was my interview with Jacob Herman, and I really enjoyed that. I thought that was really interesting. And I know that for some of you, you're like, oh, man, I wish he would just say, like, you know, he always does this thing. But I think it's really important, actually, that he didn't just say the one way to do it because there isn't one way to do it. And I think the bigger picture with this whole conversation is that if you're chasing a sound you have to understand your tools in order to know how to get the sound you want. And that means that you have to experiment. You have to be willing to try new things. You have to be willing to learn and really understand the little nuances that go a long way to get the sounds that you want. And it's only once you know those things. And once you get that experience of, you know, trial and error and learning all of those details, then you can really hone in your sound and get it exactly the way you want. So, You can't be impatient with this. You have to practice this stuff. And yeah, you could look at pictures and videos online of how people do stuff and you can copy those settings and it may work for the sound that you're after or it might not. And at the end of the day, it's just about understanding why something works or why it doesn't and what the elements are that actually get you that final sound that you want so that you can recreate that later on if you need to. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was very fascinating, and I definitely learned some new things, and I loved what he was talking about with miking China symbols and how he goes about approaching that. I think that that's something that you don't see very often, and I think the way he described it makes it make a lot of sense. So, you know, if you're spot miking symbols like China's and stuff like that, definitely try out some of the techniques that he talked about here today, because I think you're going to get much better results with it. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode and I want to say thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure to subscribe to it. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, there are a ton of great resources designed to help you with the recording, editing and mixing process to make it easy for you. And one resource that I definitely want to point you to is my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so you know what to listen for, what steps to take, how to dial in your settings, and ultimately get the sounds that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers. So make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. All right, so that's the end of this one. I can't wait to chat with you in the next episode. Talk soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.